Mark chapter 8. Why don't you begin reading with me in verse 29. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly to them. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. You know, history tells us of a unique and powerful, uh, powerfully influential man from the 8th century. His story is riveting. Uh, he's an, an interesting character who's born the son of a man by the name of Rapine the Short. His son would be king over a specific region of the world. The, the French king, his name would be Charlemagne. And you might know his story. Charlemagne, historians tell us, was a blue-eyed, curly-haired, bearded, very large man, in contrast to his father, who is known as the Short. Um, Some suggest that Charlemagne was maybe even as large as seven feet tall. He carried such a massive and weighty sword that historians mention that few could lift it and begin to swing it, but it was what he would take out on conquest and into battle. It wasn't just that he was a large man in stature, but really as a figure, he became larger than life. Because it had been three and a quarter centuries since the collapse of the Roman Empire, since, since Europe was really united under a leader, but he would somehow do it. He'd do the unthinkable, what you could even call the impossible or the miraculous. He would reunite, in a sense, the Roman Empire. He'd bring Europe back together. And on Christmas Day in the year 800 AD, Charlemagne would be hailed as Charles the Great and referred to as the 68th Emperor of Rome. Historians talk about how it wasn't just that he united Europe in that moment, but then even people to the far east, way far east, as far as Baghdad, their stories of leaders coming from there to pay tribute to him, bringing gifts like elephants and monkeys, or even there's a mention of a clock, which is a crazy concept that a mechanical clock was brought to him. Even keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre were given to him. This was a man who was revered as the king of the world. But you might know one of the most interesting things about this man's story, Charlemagne, the emperor, was not just how he lived, but what he he chose to give as instructions for when he died. 
He was in his 70s when he became ill, and he gave very specific instructions for what he wanted to have happen to him after he died about his tomb and his burial. And at his request, once he died, he was buried in a vault inside a very famous cathedral. His body was embalmed. His purple royal robes were placed over his shoulders again. He was placed on his marble throne inside that vault, this large marble throne that he would continue to sit upon. And the the floors there inside of the vault were paved with gold coins. His treasures that he he had collected were used as decor inside this closed vault. They placed his crown back upon his head. He had his royal scepter in his hand, and by his side was that massive sword that had become so iconic in history. It was quite the statement, think about it. He was buried with everything, basically, that his kingdom and empire had collected, and everything that signified him as king. He was buried with all of it. It was a statement that there won't be another one like me. That there won't be someone to come after me. Even his own sons were not fit to wear the crown that sat upon his own head. They would never touch the scepter that he would have waved with authority. You see, the vault doors were, were closed and sealed. And there was a curse that he himself had told would fall upon anyone who would break the seal. Basically, that he would come back and haunt them. And they'd have him to deal with if they broke that seal. Well, 200 years later, almost to the day, a German emperor would defy Charlemagne's orders and he'd break into the vault knowing that if I take his crown and if I get a hold of his scepter and sword, he knew it was a statement to the world that I will be like that man seated with his kind of authority and I will be like him uniting humanity again. But what he found when he entered that vault were really things just as they had been left. There he was, Charlemagne, seated on that marble throne, still embalmed and upright. Historians tell us what he found was still the royal robe on his back, still the scepter in his hand, still a crown upon his head, still his sword by his side. But there was one thing historians tell us, that this man, this king who came in to break the vault and his friends who came with him, one thing that surprised them was that a Bible sat on one of his knees. And that a single finger pointed to this verse. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? The king of the world, no one will ever follow after me. No one will have the authority. The crown will never rest on their head like it has mine. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? We've reached the dividing line in Mark's gospel. And you remember that the first half was all about Jesus progressively, slowly, patiently revealing his identity. But then the, the second half, we've reached the hinge point in the story where the second half is him immediately, very clearly communicating his purpose. Remember that the first half kind of hits the, the pinnacle, the, the climactic moment when he looks at his disciples and says, and who do you say that I am? And they finally get it. You are the Christ. And you remember that that title, Mashiach in Hebrew, the the Christos in Greek, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. It was a title that was given to any king that would rule over Israel because they would anoint them with oil. But then it became uh, synonymous with the king who would come to reign as the king forever, the one king to rule them all. The, the, the one who, who the prophecies would echo even out of the Garden of Eden itself, that God would provide himself a sacrifice, that he would come and crush the head of the serpent, 
That he crushed the rebellion that Satan would begin, but in doing so that he would be wounded himself. That that's what this is all about. That all of this is coming to pass. That you are that guy that heaven has promised to us. And then Jesus shifts on a dime and introduces us not just to that. Remember, the, the first half of the book is all about his identity. This is who I am. I'm the king who's been coming. That's who I am. But he shifts on a dime and instantly tells them his purpose. Remember, he says, and the son of man must suffer. He made it really clear to them why he had come. Now, what was really unexpected for his followers was that statement. Once it got to the point where you're Messiah, what they anticipated is that they would then go on his shoulders or in his wake, that they would march in like a a group of, of, of military individuals that were going to fight and overthrow the governing powers that were in place. But Jesus instead will tell them, I won't defeat them through their death. I will defeat our ultimate enemy through my own death. I must suffer. What was shocking, though, is that in his very next breath, He also tells them, and so will you. That if you're going to follow me, it's not just that I must by necessity suffer. It's that you must also suffer. I mean, did you catch that? That when he looks at them, it wasn't just the shock and surprise that Jesus was saying, I will intentionally do this. But then he's telling them that you have to, with that same intention, be ready to suffer with him. In fact, he says, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to pick up your own cross and you're going to have to follow me. And where Jesus was marching was towards self-sacrifice and death. You see, Jesus' invitation was and is to every person, come and follow me. But his invitation was shocking because his invitation was follow me to death. He was saying, come to me and die. Deny yourself, he said. Scripture teaches us, and, and, and the world itself echoes it. It reverberates with all, with, uh, throughout all of creation that we are sinful and broken. So we do need to deny even the things that are natural to us. There's a dual nature existing in each of us that we are made in the image of God. And as such, we are intrinsically valuable and capable of good and wonderful selfless acts. There's beauty that any person, any human being can accomplish in the world. But there's a dual nature that exists. There's a broken nature that exists inside of me that is bent on rebellion against God. That's capable of any number of heinous and broken, awful things. And if that's true, then following Jesus means that inevitably I will have desires and impulses that I'm going to have to deny, he says. And for some of us, that's going to be issues with lust. For others, it's going to be the desire for self-promotion and pride to to be angry and vengeful instead of forgiving, that we're going to have to deny those things. For some of us, it's addressing, it's hitting it right on the head, our selfishness. For some, it's addressing even your sexuality or your gender orientation, that, that you're going to have to deny yourself even what feels natural or seems natural to you if we're going to follow Jesus, that he gets to be Lord of our life. Jesus says to all of us, you're going to have to deny yourself. In fact, he takes it a step further and says you're even going to have to die to yourself. Not just deny yourself, but take up a cross. Jesus said a lot of things, I think, that really tripped people out. But this might have been one of the trippiest. I mean, think about it. There's that one moment in time where he says, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, this is a hard saying, Jesus. We don't know that we're ready for cannibalism. They're missing what he's saying, but you remember that the crowd was divided and many left in that moment. This is another one of those statements that probably thins the crowd. 
You have to pick up a cross if you're going to follow me. There's probably few things, if anything, that was quite as odd and provocative a thing for him to say into this culture in the first century than to say to them, take up your own cross and start walking with me. Okay, now buckle up. Here's your your weekly five-minute nerd rant. (laughs) Crucifixion was something that historians tell us was invented by the Persians and then was perfected by the Romans. When the Greeks came along, they thought it was so inhumane and so grotesque that they refused. It was beneath them as civilized men, so they crucified no one. Initially, when it was invented, it was used as a form of torture, but not not a way to kill people. It was not a form of execution. They would drag out torture and then release people, but the Romans began to shift the practice of it and use it as this cruel form of capital punishment. Some historians estimate that the Romans crucified as many as 200,000 people in the area of the Bible lands. Uh, Accounts of the suppression of the revolt of Spartacus in 71 BC as one example tell that the Roman army lined up the road from Capula to Rome with 6,000 crucified rebels on 6,000 different crosses. So as you traveled back to the capital, you had a reminder that you couldn't look away from that Rome was the ultimate authority and no one better stand against it. But then came another rebellion. This time it was a small rebellion that happened in Judea in, the, in 7 AD. And it, triggered, uh, it was triggered by the death of King Herod. And there's a Roman ambassador of Syria who crucified 2,000 Jews inside Jerusalem. As a statement, don't you dare think twice. Or don't you dare, you need to think twice before you ever stand up against us. Don't get any ideas like that. The historian Josephus tells us after the death and resurrection of Christ about a destruction that happened that Jesus prophesied of in 70 AD, where the Romans crucified nearly 10,000 people in response to the uprising where the Jews tried to stand against the Romans. In fact, in the, the year 70 AD, they crucified as many as 500 people per day for several months in order to try to get the Jews who had, who had basically fortified the walls of Jerusalem to get them to yield and to open their gates. They would crucify them outside the gates so that any direction you looked outside of the walls, you were watching another person suffer and die. Wood became so extremely scarce during this time, Josephus says, in the first century, that in 70 AD, when the Romans came to to build their siege ramps and to build their their big uh, weapons and, and their siege vehicles, that they had to travel 10 miles outside of Jerusalem just to find wood to build them because all of the wood had been used to build crosses. This is the culture. This is this is the time frame. This is the mindset. This is the experience of people that Jesus says, "Now take up a cross and follow me." You need to understand that that, that for these people, the the Romans, they they kept wood posts planted in the ground along busy streets and at at intersections, even in this region of the world, where they would then take a criminal and they beat them brutally and then force them to carry just the crossbeam along their back. And they carry that rugged crossbeam to the place with an upright beam. They pull it out of the ground and lay it down and then they fasten the crossbeam in place and then they fasten the individual onto it and nail them to the cross and then they place it upright, dropping the whole of the weight and pressure of their body onto the, the nails that were 
were pierced through their hands. And in history, your hand was from your elbow to your fingertips. It was probably through your wrist it, before you reach hand bones that basically it would sag on, severing a main nerve that runs there, causing your nerves to, to shoot terrible fiery impulses through your system. In addition to bleeding out from being beaten and each time you're lifting yourself up to breathe, you're rubbing your raw back from those, those wounds and the, the lashings that you've received, you're rubbing it on a rugged wood beam that's behind you each time you need to breathe. You need to understand this is the imagery. This was something they were so familiar with seeing. This is like a PTSD experience. When Jesus says, take up your cross, probably everyone in the crowd winced with him. Because crucifixion was the most painful and humiliating death possible. It was painful because it could last for hours or maybe some historians reference days on end that people would hang on a cross. Every minute of those days was filled with unimaginable pain and a struggle for life. But it wasn't just painful, it was humiliating. A victim would be stripped bare. There was no nice loincloth to be thoughtful. No, you were bare, bare, stripped bare and, and placed there naked and exposed. And they would place you at a low height. You weren't well up in the air. You were at eye level so that the ground was close enough to mock you that you couldn't put a foot down to touch it. So that you were nearly eye level with people who'd cross past uh, there on those intersections. And they'd look you in the eye and see you. They could look you in the eye like they did to Jesus and mock him and spit upon him. Because he sat almost at eye level. This is the imagery that came to mind when Jesus told them, take up your cross and follow me. Cru crucifixion was this, this perfect mode of execution for anyone engaging in or supporting or endorsing anything that would oppose Rome's authority. Your hands and feet nailed securely in place, left hanging in a position where you can't fend for yourself, where you can't move your body, where you can't wave off buzzards who come, where you can't kick away uh, the, these stray roaming dogs that would come to nip at you. You can't lift a finger to help yourself. It was a statement piece that the Romans used, that if you dare oppose us, this is what you'll face. It was not merely death by torture. It was a symbolic statement that, hey, we are the Romans and we're the ones in power here. And you're nothing and you're no one. And if you oppose us, we'll prove that to you. And it's going to be painful for you because you're going to find yourself completely powerless and will rack your body with pain until you scream for mercy. But you'll find none here. The proof of their authority, the statement piece that they were making, it didn't end when you breathed your last breath because oftentimes they'd leave bodies to rot and decay on crosses to strike fear in people. This is why for centuries the cross was not used in art. This is why no one in Jesus' day was wearing a cross as jewelry, which is not my way of saying that you shouldn't be doing it. I love the fact that last night as we drove south on the 15 freeway, my kids saw that cross it's in, in the north side of Rancho Bernardo, off the 15 freeway. I love that they saw that. And one of my kids asked, is that the cross Jesus died on? <laughs> Not quite. But then we could ask them, what do you think of when you think of a cross? And for them, they think of Jesus and they think of his love and forgiveness. I like that the cross, is, is, it means something to us that's worth celebrating, that's worth gathering around. It's really what we gather around today is a cross and an empty tomb. But you need to understand, for those people in the first century, no one wore that as a piece of jewelry any more than someone today would wear an electric chair around their neck. Because this is a cruel form of punishment, of execution. 
It's an instrument of torture. It's a symbol. The cross was a symbol of pain and death. It was a symbol of shame and humiliation. And Jesus says, be ready for that. Be ready for pain. Be, be willing to die. Be open to embracing humiliation and shame if you're going to follow me. That's the imagery that these guys would have had. First century followers of Jesus would have had trigger in their minds because they saw crucifixion all around them. When they tried to look away, they just couldn't because everywhere they looked, the Romans made sure to, to make these demonstrations publicly. And apparently, Jesus wanted them to picture a part of that. Jesus was saying that, that this would be a part of following him. Okay, so nerd ran over. Uh, my wife and I, we, we had a, a little post-bedtime date night this week, which for us with young kids, it means you feed your kids dinner, you send them to bed, and then you actually make dinner together. So they, they ate cereal or something. And then we had, we had filet mignon, obviously. No. Uh, no, for us, it's a way for us just to have some quiet time. And as, as we started making dinner and then we sat down to eat together, my wife just made a comment. She says, you know what my biggest pet peeve is? And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> Uh, I felt a little nervous and started going through in my own head. Did I leave clothes on the floor again? Like, uh, dishes in the sink. What did I do? And she says, she says, you know what my pet peeve is? She said, when pastors give invitations at an end of a service and all they try to do is make everything so positive and try to sell people on something that promises that their life is going to be easy and happy and they do everything that they can to try to wrap a nice pretty bow around it and then say, hey, come to Jesus because it's going to be great. At some point, we need to be careful that our invitation to follow Jesus doesn't look so far removed from Jesus' own invitation to follow him. Because he was honest. He didn't hide anything or pull any punches. And don't misunderstand me. It is still good news. It is good news. Without Jesus, well, what it said, I, you could gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. The word soul there is the same word that's used, not just like for your spirit. No, but it's, it's like for your psyche, for your identity. It's your body. The, the word is used interchangeably because it meant the core of who you were. You will lose your very identity. Without Jesus, you'll never find yourself and you'll never find true purpose. But you also never find yourself in eternity to come. That's what he's saying. You could gain everything, but without him, you'll have nothing. It is good news because without him, I have nothing. I will have nothing. It is good news in that I don't have to find a way to earn what he gives me. It's a beautiful gift in knowing that I'll never face adversity alone again, but I know that I will face it if I choose to follow him. It's a beautiful gift that I can live with confidence, that I have a God who stands by me, who loves me, and promises that he will never leave me nor forsake me. But the reason he can promise that is because he'd hang on a cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be forsaken so that I could, I could have the promise that he'd stand by me. He would be treated as an enemy so I could be treated as a son. But I need to know even the son suffered. And so I should not be surprised when even I suffer. Yes, it's good news that my sin is forgiven, that I have right standing with God. But Jesus here, make no mistake, Jesus' invitation to us is that we would come and follow him. But coming to follow him means taking a cross. His invitation is come and die. And for some people, even in 2021, in our world, we've seen it just in the last handful of months, people today are still dying for that choice to follow Jesus. And for us, for some of us, the rest of us, there, there might only be a death to self. A pathway of self-denial that we'll walk on. 
But we need to be sure that we know that Jesus didn't invite us just to get on the bus. He invited us to take up a cross and follow him. Now, here's our question, though. Now, why in the world would we do it then? If if this is true, if there's death to self, if there's suffering and shame, then why sign up to follow Jesus? I think Jesus answers that question in the the final story or the next story that we'll read and just comment on very quickly as we wrap up. And, and, And that's our question of, well, why would we follow Jesus if there's death to self, if there's suffering and shame? Read what's happening right on the heels of this moment when they decide Jesus will still follow you. Look and see what what they experience. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present in power. Push pause for a moment. Some read this and go, hang on, did Jesus promise that some of these guys would live up until he comes back down from heaven to set up his kingdom? And, and I can see where there'd be some confusion. But really, these people, the, the disciples, 11 of the 12 of them will see the kingdom of God come in power. Because as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is now here and still coming. Anywhere the king is, the kingdom experience was a reality. And he would leave and go to heaven after suffering and after rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. And his, his disciples would be in empowered by the Holy Spirit so that everywhere they go to Judea, Jerusalem, even the uttermost parts of the earth, they would bring the kingdom reality and power with them where people are transformed and redeemed and restored. So they saw the kingdom of God moving in power, present in power on the earth. Just look at the book of Acts to read those stories. Verse two. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Isn't that a cool little detail that's given there? Remember, Mark's writing this story from Peter's perspective. Mark isn't present in this moment. He's hearing Peter in the book of Acts, traveling from place to place, telling these stories. And then Mark begins to write out Peter's accounts of the good news of Jesus, of the gospel of Jesus. And this is one of those details that Mark would hear Peter, I assume, say again and again. And then when Moses and Elijah showed up, we all were stunned, but they sat there with him and began talking with Jesus. I wonder if that's Jesus explaining to them what his plan was all along, what God's eternal plan was from the beginning. Because they only saw things in part. Think of their lives. They went through great adversity, great hardship themselves. But now they're seeing the moment that they had longed for where God is showing up to make the world right again. It says, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because, why did he say it? Well, because he, he did not know what to say. For they were greatly afraid. God's response to that, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with them. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they'd seen till the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked Jesus, saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then Jesus answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first 
and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has already come. You remember Jesus has already used the imagery of, uh, of this guy, Elijah, and said that it was John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah has already come, John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they wished. Remember, John's already been put to death. As it is written of him. Why would we do this? Why follow Jesus if he's saying, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? Is it worth it? Well, it is because when we do it, we see Jesus glorified. And that's the first thing I just want you to write down. Three simple thoughts. We do this, and when we do this, when we choose the road of self-sacrifice, following Jesus in a pathway and in a pattern of self-sacrifice, we do it and we see Jesus glorified. Okay, think about in our story, these three guys, they they choose to continue to follow Jesus even after he's told them, following me is going to mean that you carry your own cross as well. They didn't give up and leave in that moment, and because of that, they follow Jesus to the place on top of a mountain where he will be transfigured, and they'll see him glorified. What happens in this moment, it it takes your mind back, if you've read your Bible much and you know the Old Testament well, that, that your mind goes back because it feels reminiscent of something you see happen in the book of Exodus. Where God comes down on top of a mount called Sinai in a cloud. And the voice of God came out of the cloud. And it says that everyone in that moment was afraid. And Moses in that moment, he wasn't able to see the true, the real glory of God in that place directly. But for him even being near to that place. Remember God God provided a little covering for him that he hid behind Him even being near it, he came down the mountain and it says that his face was shining with the reflection of the glory of God. And that it was so unnerving to the people that they start telling him, you know what, we'd rather not see this. We're we're kind of overwhelmed by this whole thing that just went down, Jesus. Or Moses, would you please cover your face so that we feel like we can rest a little bit more easily here. And here we are again atop a mountain, with a cloud encapsulating the top of the mountain, and a voice emerging from the cloud, and Moses even makes a guest appearance in the moment. So is this moment really just a recreation of it? Is it Mount Sinai all over again? Well, no, because there are some distinct differences. And the biggest difference is that when Moses was there atop Mount Sinai, he merely reflected the glory of God like our moon reflects the light of the sun. Whereas Jesus in this moment, he produces, he radiates the glory of God. He is the glory of God in human form. Matthew, it says in his gospel account of this moment, he says that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. John, remembering what he saw, remember in John chapter 1, he would write and say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. The writer of Hebrews would say it this way in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Jesus has been discussing his suffering that he would soon endure. But we have to pause for a moment just to remember that Jesus would not be defeated in that moment of suffering, but that he instead would be glorified because of his suffering. You see, the story, it's commonly referred to as the transfiguration because it tells us that Jesus was transfigured. You could say in this moment that the glory of Jesus' deity, that it pierced through the veil, the cloak of his humanity, 
The glory of his deity, like, like rays of the sun shooting through a cloudy, overcast day as they begin to poke through, that it's like Jesus' deity bursting through his humanity to be seen in this moment. He's transfigured, it says. The, the word is metamorphosis. That, 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 that there's a change into another form. The idea of metamorphosis is that there is the same essential life, but a change in the form of it. It's the word that we used to describe uh, my daughter, who's four, Declan. She learned in school because they took caterpillars and they put them in a, in a little setting that they could watch. And then they cocooned, you know, and then when they emerge, they come out as butterflies. And so Declan kept telling us for weeks, she'd say, metamorphosis, it means to change. It's what a butterfly does. And she'd break it down for us. And we just loved the way she said metamorphosis. So we kept asking her to say it over and over again. Because the idea is that it's the same essential life, but in a different form. And it doesn't just happen to Jesus and caterpillars. Think about it. It was a good thing for Jesus to suffer and die because on the other side of his suffering, there was life and resurrection. And he promised them that the same was true for us. That we would have the same essential life, but have a change in form. You see, the transfiguration is not just a glimpse into what is. It shows us Jesus' deity and glory. It's also a glimpse into the future of what is to come, not just for Jesus, but Jesus promised for all those who choose to follow him. You see, the way that we see Jesus here is the same way we see him after the resurrection. And that's not to say that after the resurrection, he was constantly glowing. That's not what the story tells us. But that his corruptible becomes incorruptible. What was perishable about his body becomes imperishable. It's what 1 Corinthians writes. Paul, writing the church in Corinth in chapter 15, he says, For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable perishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? See, your Bible teaches you that after the resurrection, the disciples, although they were able to recognize Jesus, it tells you that Jesus had dramatically changed. We find him walking through walls and then another moment standing firmly on the floor of an upper room without sinking through. We find Jesus transported from place to place, appearing and disappearing, and yet walking along a road with some men that he wanted to bring hope and peace to. He no longer was dependent upon food, and yet he sat and had breakfast with Peter in order to restore him. In 1 John, it says in chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See, the transfiguration doesn't just provide a glimpse into Jesus' identity and glory, it functions really as a promise to people who choose to follow Jesus, even if it's in a pathway of self-sacrifice, self-denial, and suffering. It's a promise to those who choose to follow Jesus, a promise of a future. It's a promise of transfiguration, of glorification. Is taking up the cross and following him worth it? Well, it is because Jesus is glorified and I will be a part of his glorious kingdom. And one day I will be with him in glory, even in a glorified body, scripture tells me. Okay, here's the second thing, though. 
that this story shows us, and that's the fact that Jesus is eternal. And this is another reason why, why I believe it's worth following Jesus, because he's eternal. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when it tells this story, it says that the guys were sleeping when all of this goes down. They wake up with a nightlight kicking on, and it's Jesus glowing. And they're stunned when they wake up. And, and one of the shocking things is they see three individuals standing there, and two of which of them have been dead for hundreds of years, in Elijah and Moses. And that third person, Jesus, remember, glowing like the sun. So why in the story? Why Moses and Elijah? Why does it, why, why does it notate that? Or, or why is that important or significant? Well, Moses, your mind might already go there. He represents the law. The, the first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses. They, they were written by him. And, and, and our minds are meant to connect him with the law. And Elijah would be our connection to the prophets. It's saying all of the Old Testament was present in that moment to testify of something, to see and to testify of Jesus' real identity, his glory in that moment. That's why they're present. You see, their presence tells us at least a couple of things, and one of them is this. It tells you that Jesus was not some new thing, that he was always instead God's eternal intended plan. That he was always what the law of Moses and what the prophets had pointed to. This was Moses and Elijah coming to see their hopes and dreams fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is not a plan B. He was always God's plan A. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Before God even formed the world, God knew what I would do. And he knew what it would need and necessitate for him to do for me, to redeem and restore me. So in the mind of God, it was as good as done. Humanity will rebel, and for me to rescue and redeem, to restore them, means I'm going to suffer and die. And yet he moved forward with creation. You see, Jesus is eternal. And Jesus' sacrifice was a part of the eternal past God, knowing what it would take to redeem us. And his sacrifice is a part of eternity to come. His sacrifice, it shapes and reshapes our eternal destinations. I mean, just take a moment, just like a deep breath to remember. Jesus is eternal. And then our promise is that we'll be with him for eternity in a place that's described as being free from sin, sickness, suffering, sorrow, and death. Yes, I know Jesus said, deny yourself. I know that he says, take up your cross. Yes, I know it's going to be hard. I know that it's not going to be easy. But let me remind you that it's going to be worth it. Years ago, the first wedding I did, I was terrified and kept having bad dreams before officiating that first wedding. And, and you know how bad dreams go when you're in, doing anything in public. You typically look down and realize that you forgot to finish getting dressed or something like that in a public <laughs> setting. I had all sorts of bad dreams. Like I'd, I'd open my notes and then it would say like, ha ha sucker. And someone had taken my actual notes out and just put blank pieces of paper there. And I was so nervous and stressed. You know one dream I never had though? was that the bride, as she was walking down towards her husband, had stopped midway through in order to greet guests in the audience and to look at other young men in the crowd and say, you know, I wish you and I would have dated. I mean, this could have been, we could have had a thing. This could have been, we could have had a good run at this. See, she, I, I never had a, a dream or a nightmare where it was her stopping to engage with the crowd and look around and say, you know, I wish I would have, I wish I would have, I wish I would have with all of these other people. We know for some people as they make that walk, they pause for moments just thinking, gosh, this is such a great thing that I get to walk down an aisle to receive and experience. 
that I wish I would have waited for a special moment like this. We, the bride of Christ, will one day emerge walking into heaven to see our bridegroom. None of us will look around and say, Jesus, I wish I would have. Over there or over there with them or... It says, we see the lamb who is slain. And that's when anything that we have in our hands, we throw his direction and say, worthy, worthy, worthy. It's the lamb who is slain, who was and is and is to come. That when we see him, we see what it cost him to rescue and redeem us. The scars, the wounds that we have as we walk into eternity, they're healed and made whole. Jesus bears them for eternity. The response tells us a second thing. It's that Jesus alone, their, their presence there, Elijah and Moses, it tells us a second thing, that Jesus alone was able to do what the law and the prophets were unable to do. And it's something we talk about often here, that the law, the purpose of it, was not that we could justify ourselves and, and tell ourselves we are good enough for God and we're close enough to God because look how good we're doing. We're upholding the law perfectly. No, the, the law was to show us our own brokenness. And as it reveals our brokenness, Galatians says it then shows us like a schoolmaster leads us to a solution, a resolution, and the resolution is Jesus. It points us to our need for a Savior. So it shows us them being present here that what they did, they did imperfectly. What they needed and what they had hoped for, what they had looked for, was standing before them in the person of Jesus. You know, the other thing it teaches us, though, these two guys being present, and I just thought of it just this week. I was reading this passage again and again throughout the week, and one of the things that just hit me was, was Jesus' grace. Because think about it. Moses lost his shot to enter the promised land, if you know your Old Testament. Because of his own rebellion and him, him, him melting down in a moment and, and rebelling against what God had instructed him to do, because of that, he lost what only grace could make possible. Grace, the grace of Jesus, brought him inside the promised land. Think about Elijah. Elijah's the guy who seems to have legitimately dealt with depression, where on the heels of an incredible moment, a showdown with the prophets of Baal, that he then finds himself isolated and alone and saying, he's saying to God, just take my life because I'm the only one that's left. I feel that isolated. And he, in this moment, has Jesus standing beside him, showing him, you weren't isolated and you were not defeated because look at where the pathway of your obedience has led a nation and the world to a revelation of a savior who can save the world. It's Moses there with him going, my brokenness, my rebellion disqualified me and Jesus has him present there to show him, but my grace is greater still. That mercy triumphs over judgment. I, I really mean this and I, I do believe it. There's a word there for someone this week. That when you feel like, gosh, my actions, my past has disqualified me. I can't belong. I, I don't belong. That Jesus' grace is greater still. That Moses had a dead guy buried in his backyard and then continued to rebel and have issues. But look at where Jesus brought him. Grace did all of that for him. Listen, we're told that the disciples, they're so afraid that Peter blurts out, let's just make tabernacles really quickly. I'll just tell you, I don't think that that was like, yeah, we'll worship all of you. A tabernacle all throughout history was a place that humanity would recognize in religions all throughout history. They build a tabernacle or a, pre or a, a temple to separate themselves from God because they realize we can't approach a holy God, whoever that God is. We don't feel worthy to do that. So let's build something that houses you and keeps you away from us. Let's put some separation between us. It tells you he's very afraid 
afraid in that moment. He's saying we need something, a gap in place, because we don't fit with you. It's, it's to project human, human beings that, that protect us from this divine presence. He's saying, let's erect something around you. Let's put some space between you. And then the response comes from heaven in that moment where the presence of God encapsulates the moment. Again, imagery of the Old Testament. They called it the Shekinah glory of God. It probably rattled the disciples even more until a booming voice came out and was heard. Matthew's gospel says that the booming voice said, this is my beloved son, and whom I'm well pleased, hear him. And in an instant, the cloud vanishes and only Jesus remains. It was God's way of saying that Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus alone is the bridge between God and humanity. He's able to give what Moses and Elijah could not, what no one else could give. And that's the third and final thing, the last reason I'll give you, that it's, it's, it's worth, it's always worth following Jesus, even when it's in self-denial and self-sacrifice. And that's not just that he's glorified and that he's eternal, and that our reward, eternal reward, is to be with him for eternity. It's also that Jesus is victorious. He's victorious. Why take up my cross and follow him? Because he's victorious. You see, we're beginning to see why the cross was so necessary. We start to understand what it's really trying to accomplish. But, but it will seem in our story, by, like that in that moment, uh, that, that Jesus is anything but triumphant when he will die on a cross. It will look more like a tragedy. But this moment gives you a foreshadow. The, the transformation reveals Jesus not as defeated, but as victorious. It's showing you that he wins and is triumphant. Okay, close your Bible. When the disciples, they realize we're in the presence of God in this moment, it says that they were struck with fear. And, and then this cloud comes in, and, and, and they think not only, uh, you know, they're amazed that they don't die, but in that moment, they're surrounded then and embraced by the brilliance of God's glory all around them. And then they hear the Father speak that beautiful truth. This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. One commentator I read, he, he just brilliantly said it. He said that this is, he, he picked up on the beauty of this moment and said that, that this moment where they were aware of God's presence was an experience that really left them, he said, and I quote, an electrified wonder. The buzz of the moment was something they were caught up in. What they experienced for a moment was, was just a worshipful moment. That's what they experienced. On the mountaintop, surrounded by the presence and glory of God, what they experienced was worship. Don't miss this, because this is how we close. The experience that they had in God's presence is the worship experience that I think God intends for us to have. One author, he said it beautifully. He says, worship is a preview of the thing that all our hearts are longing for, whether we know it or not. Because all of us want to feel like we belong rather than that we're estranged or a stranger. We all want to feel like, we, we long to feel acknowledged. We, we want to feel welcomed and on the inside rather than feeling just like an outsider looking in. We, we need to be valued and loved. And I believe that worship is not just believing those things, that we belong and are acknowledged and seen and welcomed and loved. The disciples in the story, they already believed those things. Remember, they already believed you are the Christ. But now they're sensing and experiencing, more than just believing, they're sensing and experiencing what they already believed. Think about that. As the presence of God now envelops this moment and embraces them. 
Worship takes what, what believing, it, it takes believing into the realm of sensing and experiencing. Worship allows you, yes, to express your gratitude to God, your love for God. But worship also allows you to feel the embrace of God and to hear the affirming voice of God whisper things like, this is my child whom I love and am well pleased with. Worship is where we can go to to get the kind of approval, the, the kind of encouragement, the kind of love that we need. And we can go there safely knowing that we don't crush Jesus under the weight of those things. If we go to a spouse or to a job or to a, ch- a child or a friend or to a hobby or any other thing with the weight of needing those things, of feeling approved and encouraged and loved, we crush them underneath it. But when we take those things to Jesus... When we begin to express our heart of thanksgiving to him in worship, I believe that he can carry that burden and responds to us. And what we believe is taken to a deeper level of experience. Worship allows you to experience what you already know to be true. You know, I think for us, so much of the time, at least in my own head, I think of worship as my opportunity to disengage with reality. But think about it. Worship is not disengaging with my reality. It's, it's engaging, intentionally engaging with a greater and deeper and truer reality. That's what worship is, right? We are no more disengaging with our reality than we are disembodied when we sing. We're not disembodied. We're not disengaging from the brokenness of our world, from the difficulties of our day, from the, the hardship of life. What we are doing instead is engaging intentionally with a greater reality. And that greater reality is that he is big when I am small. That he is infinite when I recognize that I am just finite. That I'm safe to be flawed in his presence because he remains flawless and loves me even in my brokenness. It's where I am am free and welcome to express my own limitations because I express them to the one who is without limit in that moment. All because I'm connected to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. The one who loves me and cares for me, who extends grace and forgiveness to me. In worship, I connect with the one who not just early in the gospels, midway through what we're seeing right here, is his deity bursting through his humanity. In worship, I'm connecting to the one who all of a sudden will be shocked when we find at the end of the gospel story It's going to be the frailty of the humanity of the one that we had come to see as God among us as he soaks the floors of Gethsemane in his tears on his way to a cross. It's not only the the shock and surprise of Jesus' deity that causes us to turn his direction in wonder and worship him. It's his willingness to embrace the frailty of the human experience that makes us look his way, gaze in wonder and worship that he would become breakable and broken for us. That is who we worship. And when we worship, we do not disengage with this reality. We choose to engage, re-engage with a greater, deeper, truer reality that's a part of our lives and, and a very real thing in our world. Not just in our future, but in our present too.